Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded Podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation, unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it, and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon the Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. Let's go to Numbers chapter 13. If you want to get to a question, and uh, I don't get to mute you fast enough, you can unmute yourself to be able to ask a question if you need to. Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. Numbers 13, 1 through 16. Listen to what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. And then it lists their names. I'm going to skip that, okay? Verse 16. These are the names of the men who Moses sent out to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Okay, so here God wants them to go and spy out the land. Now remember, remember in verse 2 what God already said. God said, send out for yourself men that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which what? I am going to give to the sons of Israel. He's already told them, even before they go and see what's going on, even before they see the situation there in the land of Canaan, he's already said to them, I'm going to give you this land, right? Give you this land. So it's something to pay attention to. God wants a detailed report, but not for himself. God already knows what's there. He wants them to go to the land, to spy it out with their own eyes, and come to the same conclusion he did. Okay? That no matter what they see with their eyes, God has already told them what to believe by faith. And see, we walk by faith, right? Not by sight. But how many of us, the sight dictate what we believe every day? What we see on social media, what we see on the news, wherever it is, these men... God wanted them to go see with their eyes what they were facing with the promise already inherently in them that regardless of what they saw, they were going to get the land. It was already theirs before they even left to go look at it. It was already theirs. Okay. They go to gather intelligence. They use their own ability. They use their own education and knowledge, their own thinking skills to accomplish the mission for God. Okay, as the, all of us are supposed to do to the best of our ability. Now, let's go to Numbers 13, verses 17 to 20. In verse 17 of, uh, of chapter 13 of Numbers, it says, Then when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land, fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? 
make an effort. Did you see that? Make an effort. So God said, I'm going to give you this land. But that does not preclude the people of God having to make an effort with their own thoughts, their own hearts, and their own minds. They have to make, we have to make an effort. Okay, why? Because God needs the help? No, because that's the best place we can be and it's the best we can do. That's what separates us as Christians from the rest of the world. That's what separates the people of God from the rest of the world, right? Make an effort, he said, then get some of the fruit of the land. And uh, now the time was, uh, was the time of the first ripe grapes. So we'll stop right there for now. So this was to do what? It was to test their faith. Test their faith. Was it on God's promises? God said, no matter what you see, the land's yours. But were they going to believe their eyes? Or were they going to believe God's word? Hey, I know that stuff. Trust me. I'm not standing here as someone who's got that down or has perfected it by no way, shape, or form. But that's the difference. Is that I had to back away from a lot of the stuff going on on social media, a lot of the stuff going on in the news, because it was poisoning my spirit and poisoning my soul and making me so angry and bitter and impatient and frustrated. And I had to start saying, okay, God, <laughs> no matter what happens now or in November or a year from now, you are sovereign God. You are in control. And you've already told me, like you told these men, that I'm going to be okay. Right? And that's where I have to put my trust. And I'll tell you, when I work on that, it gets way better for me. My heart gets lighter. My mind gets clearer. When I'm focused on Him, <laughs> things get better. I keep forgetting. I keep stubbing my little toe and I keep forgetting. And I keep getting dragged back into the mire and the muck and the junk. But he keeps reminding me, right? So here, it was to test their faith. Was it going to be on God's promises or their own wisdom and strength? They would rely on their own wisdom and strength. And I ask you, saints, as I just said, what is your faith based on today? What your eyes and ears tell you or what God has already promised you? Victory. Peace, right? A victorious life in the midst of anything. Do you think this is the first time the world's had to go through struggles like this? We're only 240 years old in America. 240 years old. The rest of the world is thousands of years old and they've suffered entire annihilations. Europe raised to the ground, right? All Italy had to be built from Rome had to be built from the ground up literally and we are walking around thinking that we have we're seeing times in the, in, in the in America that the world has never seen and never will again are you kidding me we're barely stubbing our toe in the scheme of the time on this planet barely even stubbing our toe so we got to keep things in God's perspective not our perspective they completed the work. 40 days they went over there and spied out the land and checked everything out. At first, it was a positive report, wasn't it? The land was everything God said it would be and more. But, you ever had somebody say, uh, everything's going great, but. Once they say but, 
Everything before the word but doesn't count anymore, does it? Because they just erased everything they said before when they said but. What did they see? They saw strong people there in fortified cities. Caleb and Joshua trust God because he already said the land was theirs. Right? Already said the land was theirs. Let's go to Numbers 13 verses 25, starting at verse 25. Numbers 13, verse 25. It says, When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word of them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land you sent us, and it is certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, right? That's what they said. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev with the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. What did the other men say? But the other men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against these people. They're too strong for us. They said, So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out, saying, The land, though... Uh, through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And the land, the people whom we saw are men of great size. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, a part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in their sight, so that we were, and so were we in their sight. They trusted their own eyes. They trusted their own eyes. They do not deny. Okay, Caleb and Joshua do not deny that the people and the cities are formidable. They saw what the others saw, except through the eyes of faith. But the other ten, and they list them by name, Shamua, Shaphet, Egal, Hosea, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nabi, Gul, could not even fathom going in there with the obstacles that they faced. They said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And then what do they do? What everybody does with bad news, whether in the church, your family, or at work, whatever, right? Misery loves company. So what do they do? They go through the people. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Notice how they quickly, how quickly bad news, unbelief, discontent spreads among God's people. They said the land... We explored devourers those and are living it. The people are great size, right? As I had said before. I wonder how many in the Christian church feel the same way about the world today. They're so afraid they don't even want to try to do anything for the kingdom of God because they too see the land all around them, America, the world all around them, and they say, oh, are you kidding me? All right? This land devours its inhabitants, right? They're too strong for us. We're, we're nothing in their eyes. And that's going to be the difference, isn't it? Between the faith of a Caleb and Joshua who says, God already said we won. 
We're got the land. It's done. It's, a, it's done. As opposed to, we can't do anything with this. this is, they're too strong. It's too powerful. It's no good. We, we can't win. We can't win. And so what happens to those naysayers, those that look, saw with their eyes and saw that they, they weren't going to even try? What happened to them? Well, guess what? They get to wander aimlessly one year for every day they spent exploring the land. Because they felt they could not trust God, they did not believe God, they believed what they thought they were seeing with their own eyes. For every day, 40 days that they spent spying out the land, they spent 40 years wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. So you see, how they believed, right, their view of the future impacted how they lived. They could have been, they could have taken the land right then and there and been in paradise, the promised land right then. But instead, they were forced to wander aimlessly for 40 years because of their fear and unbelief. Right? Fear and unbelief. Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Verses 20 to 40. I'll go ahead and... Participants are unmuted. I just unmuted you all, so you guys, if you have any comments. Okay, yeah. Um, do you know if there was any indication, uh, maybe in the original Hebrew or whatever, that uh, said how they went into the land? Did they go in as a group of ten plus a group of two, groups of two? Did they all go in together as a group of twelve? Because I'm thinking that, you know... Um, Caleb and Joshua's response was so different. I'm just wondering if they, if they did a two-by-two thing. Plus, I'm also thinking if you got a group of 12 guys coming in, that would probably garner more attention. Well, um, looking at the looking at the uh, text itself, right? It says that they were, you know, that they were they were chosen, right? I'm going to give you okay. So he says uh, Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran. And it lists their names, okay. And uh, so I don't have any indication here personally, and I and, and I haven't really, honestly, never even thought about that because I've always assumed that I never even questioned whether or not, but I always assumed they all went in together. So I honestly don't know if there if, if something in the language or in the text would indicate that they went separately or two by two. Uh, I can't. I, I don't know. I don't know. Because the, the reactions are so completely opposite. And, and not only that, uh, Don, but they're, they're not only opposite, but they're two out of 12, right? You would have thought that maybe 50-50, uh, maybe a few more would, you know, there would be more people, you know, maybe a half and half. Some didn't believe, some did, but there was two out of 12 that said, yes, we can do this, and the other 10 said no. So in this particular instance, my my inclination is that for some reason they did go together. They somehow hung together. They all saw the same things, but everybody came back. You know, these two came back, Joshua and Caleb, which, you know, you remember in the rest of the scriptures, they kind of, they, they were faithful men all the way through, right? Caleb, even at 80 years old, wanted to go in and take all this land that God had promised them. And Joshua went on to bring the people to the promised land. Right to deliver the people to the promised land, as he as he well stated, but these uh, the rest of these did not. And it, it kind of appears that Caleb and Joshua were the ones 
they went and got the spoils and brought back. Oh, and the other ten didn't. And so maybe because they were able to go actually get, you know, massive things of grapes and bring them back, that they, um, uh, they said, hey, we can do this. We this, God told us to do this. We can do this. Um, and the others, because they didn't step out and try to do that, didn't think that they could overcome it. Well, and again, it still goes to the point that they didn't, if, if that's the case, they didn't believe in God even enough to try. Right. And that's what I think stymies a lot of us Christians. Me, you, a lot of us. Um, there's so many things that I wish I had done, but fear kept me from doing them. Later on, I find out, you know, uh, now that I'm too old to do it, I want to do it, you know, but I can't. But it's like, we. it just seems like fear sometimes, a uh, lack of faith, a disbelief, an unbelief, a uh, fear of that, uh, of, of what's out there, just stops us before we even try. And um, and I think that's a big problem in the Christian church, right? Because I think that a lot of Christians feel defeated, feel disappointed, and discouraged. They look around, um, but we have to remember that God already said the He's already the, the victory is already ours. We are already triumphant. Nothing that happens to us on this earth is an indication of defeat for us. Not even death. Death is by far not even close to being an indicator of defeat for the Christian, right? Because Where's thy victory? You know, grave, where's thy sting? For us, there is none. <laughs> you know, there is none. So, yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot of probably a lot of psychological reasons, but I think that the lesson is still the same and God's what he's trying to communicate here and what I'm trying and how I'm trying to put this in to play before we step into Revelation, which is the ultimate prophecy book in the Bible is to say we have to come into it. Believing God, believing faith, having faith in Him, trusting Him, and saying no matter what we see, and it's difficult, right? You, you know, uh, people say I have to see it to believe it. People say this is the reality of life. This is the way it works. The Bible's not reality. Well, I think it's the other way around. God's reality, the Bible is the reality, and we take in and see what we want, not through faith, but just through our eyes. Right, and that's why the Bible says over and over again, the righteous, uh, the, the uh, shall walk by faith, not by sight. Because if we walk by sight, yeah, it looks bad, it looks horrific, it looks ugly throughout the centuries from the Christian church from beginning to now. It will, it, it would look terrible. That people would say, you know what? Don't even. <laughs> we can't even try. This is so bad. So the lesson here is, we got to come in trusting God for what He said. And he said to them, I'm going to give you this land already, but go check it out for yourself. See how much you like it. Pick out a nice condo or whatever you want, right? <laughs> and to show that there's going to be a remnant, there's going to be a couple people that are going to be like, no matter what they see. And we know there's people like that. There's people right now in this Bible study that, that believe like Caleb and Jacob and, and, and uh Caleb and Joshua, right? They have that faith in God that's solid, you know, no matter what happens. But a lot of us don't. I'm afraid that if I had gone into that wilderness, Don, I'd have come back one of the ten. Right? <laughs> I'd have come back a wood. I would like to say, yeah, man, I'd have come back like Caleb or Joshua and said, yep, it was Caleb, Joshua, and Gil. Right? <laughs> but unfortunately, that might not be the case.
Yeah. Yes. Um, Brenda, the, the Hi, thing that you mentioned um, that seeing is believing is the opposite. It's believing is seeing. And the ten did not believe, and the two did. Yes. And so they saw. Yeah. So be, so it's funny that because they already doubted God's word, they their perspective was skewed, wasn't it? When they went into when, when Caleb and Joshua walk in there, they already saw a defeated land. They already they were picking their condo. They were picking their parking spot, right? They were picking the best place to put their you know whatever, and they came from and a grapevine. Yeah, they yeah they they already came in with a perspective that it was already theirs. The other ones didn't. The other ones came in with the perspective of. Let, uh, you know, can we take this? Can we do this? Are we going to be able to handle this? Well, uh, probably not. Right? Not the Nephilim were were big men, warriors, fighters. Right? There were uh, guys like Goliath. Goliath was one of those guys. Right? And he had a lot of brothers, so they were formidable people. But it all depends on the perspective you walk into in the first place, from the very first place. But yes. Yeah. Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, I'm having a hard time trying to understand how is it that um, we are saved by grace and not by faith? How does that work? Well, um, <laughs> we are saved by grace through faith. Yeah. Okay. And not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? So we are saved by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation unto good works. But we are not saved by our efforts, right? You cannot add or subtract to take away from your salvation based on what you do. But, but, and this might be a little controversial to you, but I still yeah, think right. that I still think that the Christian still has to show, bring forth fruit. By their fruits, you shall know them. So there has to be some type of outward display. You can't simply say, well, I'm saved and I can do whatever I want. And I don't have to follow God. I don't have to obey God. Or I don't have to, you know, my life. No, uh, the Bible says that you're a light on a hill that everybody can see. Right? You can, you can see the light of one candle 11 miles away. Yeah. 11 miles away. So... We are saved unto good works, which God had prepared beforehand for us to do, which means we had already uh, carved out a place in the kingdom of God for us to do his work and further it over. Now, here's the thing. People think that building the kingdom of God is only evangelism, is only working at the church, is only reading your Bible, but that's not the case. Building the kingdom of God on this earth is living a... Sermon on the Mount life, where you yourself, right? You are honorable. You are you um are you, you know you are living a life that people can see for Christ that represents Christ. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean just oh work 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 for the kingdom as far as what happens in the church or spiritual gifts. No, it's your entire life is the kingdom of God. You're living in the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Therefore, everything in your life, how you treat your fellow man, how you treat a stranger, how you treat your coworker, how you treat your family, how you keep your house in order, all those things are builders of the kingdom of God. Right? So 
That uh, hope that kind of answers your question a little bit. Gil? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I believe that we have to have an attitude when we're going in that we are a Christian and we have faith, and that attitude has to make even though we might be a minority among a group, we have to have the fortitude to speak up and try to plant the seed to save someone. That's our job. Yeah, and the thing about it is, is that your your character and attitude and behavior should should be as such as the epistle says, and I think it's Paul that says that your that your uh, the gospel becomes attractive to other people, right? The gospel becomes like Saint Francis said, right? Um, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. What did he mean? He means that our lives are are we're kingdom builders with our life. That's uh, the last Bible study I said, and uh, I'm gonna. I know I'm probably not gonna finish. Well, I got two pages left. Maybe I can. I was saying last week how one of my pet peeves is people that say they don't know what God's will is for their life. Right? What's yeah. God's will for my life? Well, here's God's will for your life. God's will is that you include Him in every aspect of your life. Okay. Um, we like that. We you know people think everything is set in stone. Well, just because God knows it ahead of time doesn't mean He it's set in stone. You still can make your own decisions. You still decide who you marry. You still decide what job you're going to take. God uh, grants his favor and wisdom and knowledge and experience to you because he wants to be taken along. If you decide to become a, whether it's a doctor or a politician, God's will for your life is that you bring him with you and serve him in those capacities. You see? But we want to wait till somehow something gets unfolded before us and there's this, you know, how-to book and tomorrow I want you to go to the store. Tomorrow I want you to go, you know, give food to this homeless guy in the corner. It's like, no, we have complete free will. But on the other hand, God reserves the right to use every free decision we make to further his kingdom. It all ends up fitting in his plan. You see, it's like my computer. In my computer, I, my computer makes trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of calculations, correct? But it only can go to the extent of the pro, it can't go beyond its programming. So no matter what I decide to do on this computer, it has to fit the ultimate program. And for us, it's the same way. God's will for our lives is that we will him constantly into our lives and invite him into everything, every decision we make. When I hear people say, well, I don't mix my politics with religion, well, first of all, you're lying. Okay? Yeah. Because every your politics are dictated by your philosophical view of life and God and everything else. But you have to bring God into with you everywhere you go, and he has to be Lord of your life no matter what job you're doing. And that that is doing his will. That is following his plan. He gives you enough freedom to make your own decisions, but he reserves the sovereign right to make those decisions do his ultimate will, no matter what. He has the final word, you see. So that's a, a part of it right there, and our good works do that. No, we can't do anything to earn our salvation, to earn any of it. But we still are obligated to live lives according to his will, because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay, so let me see if I can get through the rest of the study and get you out of here in the next 12 minutes, okay? Okay, so again, getting back to what happened to these guys that were naysayers that said they couldn't take the land. For every day they were there, they spent a year in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness. By contrast, 
By contrast, Joshua, right? Later on, Joshua, go to Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, this is the story of Rahab the harlot. Okay, let me read it to you real quick. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of the harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told by the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come in here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and said, "Yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they came. Where, uh, I don't know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them." But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stacks of flax which she had laid in an order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the forge, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to, the, uh, to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen us, uh, on us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since, you have dealt kind, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me the pledge of truth. So here, Rahab the harlot expressing a faith in God that was greater and stronger than those of the Israelites who had gone to spy out the land. Not only that, keep in mind, these Israelites had been with, God came out of Egypt, right? In those generations had been with God the entire time. So she believed and feared everything by faith, which the Israelites had actually seen and experienced for themselves. So here, and remember, they saw God's miracles. They saw God's works, right? And even generations removed, all those stories came down. God was with them. But Rahab had never seen him. But she believed by faith. Okay? And what? And she never saw him. In this instance, the people of the land. Think, look at this. In this instance, it was the other way around. Now the people of the land saw themselves as grasshoppers and the people of God as giants. You see? In this instance, the people of the land were scared of the people of God. They feared him. And what was the report from these two spies? In Joshua 2, 22-24, uh, it says, They departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road but had not found them. And the two men returned and came down to the hill country and crossed over to the uh, came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they related to him all that happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted before us. You see, I believe, uh, well, no, wait. So what was God's response? Well, Joshua chapter 5. I'm going to let you read that for yourself, okay? But basically, God here comes and fights for them, okay? But I don't have time because I want to get you out of the decent time here. So I'll let you read that. So here's the, the deal. I believe that these contrast, these are the contrasting views in the Christian world today. 
one segment saying we can't attack those people that is unbelieving society they're stronger than we are and the uh, and they spread among the israelites a bad report among the people of god among the church a bad report about the land they say you know we the land we explored devours those are living in it the people there are great size we saw the anti-christian activists and we saw the homosexual lobbyists the political leadership going astray religious people persecuted and uh, relentlessly oppressed Prayer and Jesus taken out of schools, evolution taught replacing creation, morality ridicule and immorality considered heroic and enlightened, the world has turned upside down. So we bring that bad report to God saying we can't handle it. And God responds by allowing us to wallow and drown and uh, in our own faltering faith, wandering aimlessly, weak, hopeless and defeated not trusting him in his word. We while away our time awaiting him to send Jesus back to earth to remove us from this broken, miserable planet and punish the entire earth for their unbelief and rebellion against him. Finally, like those Israelites that explored the promised land, they fall just short of the prize because they cannot believe God. And we have also quit way too soon. We have punched out too early. We have called it a day way too soon. But what if the opposite were true? What if like the second time Joshua sent the Israelites, we understood the power and promise of God's word in our lives and claimed victory by moving forward in this earth with the unrelenting and unwavering faith that God will use us to penetrate, to invade, to take over the earth for Jesus and make it his footstool, as he says in, in Hebrews. And he's going to sit there until we make the earth his footstool, right? What if we had this kind of faith and trust in his word that we could say, the Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands and the people are melting in fear because of us. Many have speculated what might happen if we understood the power we have been granted by God in this world. Martin Luther King, he once wrote this, Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were the colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than men. They were a small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the art supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence and often vocal sanction of the things that are. Martin Luther King, letter from Birmingham Jail. How long will we relegate the rest of the world to an apocalyptic and cataclysmic destruction before the church triumphant wakes up and begins to snatch souls from the horrific suffocating judgment of an eternal hell. Like a domesticated lion raised as a family pet, the church doesn't know its own bone-crushing strength and the razor-sharp fury of its own ferocious power because it has never had to use it to fight, struggle, and survive. Okay, That's the modern church. 
Not the old church, because the old church for 2,000 years had to fight tooth and nail. For the first 300 years of their existence, they lived in catacombs. It wasn't until uh, the, the, uh, 300 AD where they finally got let out and see the light of day. And what did they, they survived and because they survived, we're here today. Okay. The devil's greatest accomplishment has been to domesticate the primitive Christian, convince us that we're powerless and weak, hopeless and of no consequence whatsoever, and that the world is winning and we should just sit this world out until Jesus comes back. And this is why we need a proper understanding of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written to convince, in no uncertain terms, the persecuted, weak, puny, ragtag group of believers then, and even more so now, that God remains forever on the throne, firmly in control, and forever victorious, as the gates of hell will never prevail against it because of their faith. While America is only 240 years old, they launched a faith 2,000 years into the future that reached every single one of us today. And if this generation decides to sit this one out, then God will raise his soldiers in the next. But God, forgive us if we all do. We sat on our talent. We tried to turn it back to him intact. How do you think that will turn out for us, saints? Remember the parable of the, of the talents, right? One of them sold them, you know, invested it for 10 more. One of them invested it for five more. The last one buried it, thinking he could give it back to his owner intact and he'd be fine. And that guy was relegated to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He was called wicked, evil, lazy. Let's not sit on our talents. So stay tuned since next week we will break the first seal. On the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Final thoughts, comments, or questions before I send you on your way. People really watch what you do. And even though I never told anybody that I was a Christian, whether I worked for the police department or whether I worked at the design center, but everybody figured out that I was by my actions and by able to sometimes find the right word to try to convince them of, to be a believer. Amen. Amen to that. Thank you, Roseanne. Thank you. Yes. It's me. Um, I wanted to ask you two things. Uh, prayer request for Kathy's brother. He's not doing well right now, and he really could use your help and prayers for everybody. And two, uh, how do we get to the gates of hell and start fighting? <laughs> Well, that, that is the second one is real easy, uh, Michelle. Just pray for the Lord to start opening doors and tell him you're ready to take the fight to the enemy. He'll give you opportunities. Trust me. He won't. He, he's ready. He's ready for you. He's been waiting for you. Thank you. Guys, again, um, you guys are gluttons for punishment. You're diehards. I can't wait to do the next lesson with you. Now we're going to be dipping into Revelation, the uh, Revelation, the book itself, and uh it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a great time. So let me pray and send you guys on your way. 
Blessed Father in heaven, I praise and thank you again for another opportunity, Father, for us to study your word, Lord. And I pray that we all take these words to heart, Father, and not live in fear, but see with the eyes of grace, with the eyes of faith, Father, that you have already defeated this world. It's it's already been defeated, Father. But until then, Father, there are souls to be saved and there's uh, lives for the kingdom to be lived. And we need to live that kingdom, uh, walk that kingdom mile, Father, and live that kingdom life. I just pray that you help us all, Father, because we can't do it without the Holy Spirit, Father. We don't want to just be uh, going through the motions, Father. We want to live for you, Lord, and we want to further the kingdom of God on this planet, Father. So please help us all do that. Praise your name. Thank you for your mercy and grace upon us until we see each other next Tuesday. And we'll continue praying for everybody on this list until we get a good a good report, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you, saints. This concludes Lesson 5, Part 2 of Revelation Decoded, Why Our View of the End Times Matters. Please join us for Lesson 6 of Revelation Decoded, Things Which Must Soon Take Place. So who was the Apostle John writing to in the book of Revelation? Was it the contemporary Jews in the first century? Or were they to ignore Revelation because it wouldn't find its fulfillment until 2,000, possibly 3,000 years later? Why does John seem to mislead his readers by using phrases such as the things which must soon take place and for the time is near? Or did he mislead them? Think you know Revelation? Come and see. May God bless you, saints.